This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction this morning. Father, we're thankful that we have your word to go to. May we be reminded that this is the absolute authority in our lives, that our authority does not reside in our experience. It does not reside in our ability to reason through things, for there are imposed limits upon the experience and the reasoning capacities of man based on the fact that we are finite creatures. So ultimately, we only know how to interpret our experience and how to interpret our thinking and reasoning when we do that under the authority of your word. As the psalmist said, it is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and it is only in your light that we see light. So therefore, we come today to submit our thinking, our opinions, our values to your word that you may instruct us and teach us by God the Holy Spirit as we study your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, and the focal point this morning is on forgiveness, forgiving sins. I want to stop a minute as we begin by just thinking our way through this section of, of Matthew. Matthew records these events in the life of Christ not in a chronological manner, which is what we might expect, but in a topical manner, a thematic manner. He, the general structures I've pointed out before in Matthew is chronological, but within that chronology, he takes uh, snapshots of different things, and he sets the stage in each one of those snapshots so that it demonstrates a particular point. This snapshot covers the 8th and ninth chapter, and the focal point of this section is to demonstrate the authority and the power of Jesus as the Messiah. It's structured in a way where you have a group of miracles, and then there is, a, there is following that uh, one or two uh, incidences that relate to discipleship. Then there's two or three more miracles, and then another couple of instances that talk about discipleship. Then there's three or four more miracles, and then again, a concluding emphasis on the need for disciples because of the need of the work in order to proclaim the gospel. And so as I'm going through this, I have purposefully uh, done my own thematic arrangement, And I'm not going to deal with the discipleship passages until we get to the end. So I'm going through each section of the 
of the miracles as they are, as they are presented. And then we're going to come back and look at these discipleship passages. And there's a connection between the two because as Jesus is is performing these miracles to demonstrate who he is, the implication is that this, this is incumbent upon us as believers to become disciples. Not all believers are disciples, but a disciple is a believer who is, has made the decision that he wants to be a consistent student of Jesus Christ, the teaching of Scripture, and the Word of God. A disciple is a believer who is committed to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. But discipleship isn't ever presented in Scripture as something that is really an option for believers. It's not presented that, well, yes, you can just go to heaven and then discipleship. Well, that's just something else, but you can have, you can do one without the other. You can't have one without the other. But the implication of Scripture is that because of the authority of Jesus Christ, because of who he is, it puts an incumbent responsibility on us to follow him because of who he is. That's the internal connection here. Now, Lordship Salvation, which comes along and tries to sort of introduce backdoor works to this, comes comes and says, if you don't become a disciple, then you weren't truly saved to begin with. And they equate the term disciple with being a believer. And that's just not true. Discipleship is something in addition to simply trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. So we're going through this, and we're looking at each of these examples. And the first three miracles that I covered at the beginning of chapter 8 were miracles of healing, demonstrating that as Messiah, Jesus could solve one of the greatest consequences of sin, which is physical illness, disease, uh, problems of health, as well as death. Jesus is going to be able to solve that. He, that will be solved in the kingdom. And so he is giving this this preview of coming attractions in those three miracles. Each, actually, in each set, there's a preview of coming attractions. In the second set, where we are now, these are miracles of power. The first set were miracles of healing. These are miracles of power. The last set relate to miracles of restoration, each of which points to his role as the promised Messiah who will bring in the kingdom. The three miracles that are presented here are the stilling of the storm on the Sea of Galilee. Second, he, as we saw last time, uh, Jesus cast out demons from the two demon-possessed men. And I had a question this morning that comes up every now and then. So what happened to those demons after they went into the pigs? Well, the pigs rushed down into the Sea of Galilee and they, they drowned. But the demons, who are fallen angels, just went back to their uh, immaterial abode, their invisible abode. The world, we're told, is, is uh, not only material, but there are immaterial beings who surround us. They're both holy angels as well as fallen angels. And so those fallen angels just went back into their immaterial state. Uh, the third example that we're looking at this morning is that Jesus heals a paralyzed man in Capernaum in order to demonstrate that he can forgive sins, that he has divine prerogatives, and he is stating that he is divine by his forgiving of sins. It's an interesting passage because it doesn't bring out or emphasize the, the aspect of his hypostatic union, but it is very subtly there within the text 
both in terms of the fact that he makes this claim to forgive sins and only God can forgive sins, so that is a claim to deity. But then when he refers to himself, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, which is an emphasis on his humanity. So behind the scenes here, underneath what we read in the text, so to speak, is is this subtle allusion to the hypostatic union that Jesus is both undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person. So as we looked at these previous ones, we saw that, first of all, Jesus demonstrated his authority and power over the forces uh, of creation to show that he's the creator God who sustains and controls creation, and he will reverse the damage of sin, that is, through the example of illness and disease, during the kingdom that he is offering. Second, he demonstrated his authority and power over Satan and the fallen angels, the demons, which gives a preview of the fact that during the kingdom, Satan and the demons will be confined to the abyss, and they will not be a force or a factor during that thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus on the earth. And in the third, he's showing that he has the divine prerogative to forgive sins, which will be a hallmark of his messianic reign. So, three things are brought out here. He demonstrates his authority and power to forgive sins to show, first of all, that he's God. He's making a claim to deity, and he's doing it in a particularly significant environment. He is making a claim to be God by exercising divine prerogatives. Only God can forgive sins. So when Jesus says that he forgives the sins of this uh, paralyzed man, it is obvious that he is claiming to be God. Secondly, he is demonstrating that as Messiah, he will save his people from his sins. Gabriel announced that the reason Jesus should be called Yeshua, which has been converted to Greek as Jesus and into English as Jesus, comes from the Hebrew verb yasha, which means to save or deliver. And so Gabriel uh, told uh, Joseph that he should name the infant Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so he is showing that he has the authority and the power to do that by forgiving this paralyzed man of his sins. And third, as Messiah, he is showing that he has the power and authority to bring in a kingdom based on those redemptive promises and prophecies from the Old Testament that were given to Israel uh, throughout her existence and even before that going back to Genesis chapter 3.15 and that verse where it is uh, prophesied that the serpent will, uh, will bite the heel or strike the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman will step on or crush the head of the seed of the serpent, an embedded prophecy of the Messiah. So let's look at what's going on in the text. Remember, these are not necessarily chronologically related. Each of these examples are not necessarily chronologically related. Matthew is just picking them and organizing them in a way so that he is presenting evidence of his basic thesis that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who fulfilled all of the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. So he just gives us a very brief picture of each of these events. 
That's why they're expanded a little more in the other Gospels. So Matthew 9, 1 says, So he got into the boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. He tells us that he is. this occurs roughly sometime after the uh, casting out of the demon of the two demoniacs, and that the way in which he returned to Capernaum was via a um, via the boat. And he goes back to his own city. We should pay attention to that. It indicates that he's now living in Capernaum. This is his city. He had, we've studied this earlier, he had moved from Nazareth, his hometown, to Capernaum because Capernaum was no small town. It wasn't just a sleepy little fishing village. It was a commercial uh, fishing village that was situated on a major trade route. According, and looking at the map here, this trade route would have come down if you went up to the northwest. Uh, uh, you would find about 45, no, maybe a little further, about 60 miles away from here is Damascus. And there was a trade route that came down from uh, Damascus, came across the shoulder of Mount Carmel, came down the slopes from the Golan Heights, which is the area to the east of the Sea of Galilee, and then it came along the north and east sides of the Sea of Galilee before going further further south into the uh, Esdralon Valley and then going down part of the part of it would head to part of the highway would head to the coast and then head south to Egypt on the coast and the other part of the highway would then go south and go through the hill country of Samaria and on down towards Jerusalem so it's a ma- on a major trade route and it was a significant hub of of commercial activity. There were a number of people there, significant people there. The uh, We've read that the centurion uh, there was a God-fearer, and he gave, mon- gave the money to build a synagogue in Capernaum, which indicated that he had a, a certain degree of, of wealth. Also, you had others that were involved in the administration of of the territory in in Galilee who lived in Galilee. So it's a significant, significant area. And so Jesus had relocated there and for his ministry. Mark puts it a little differently. Mark says when he had come back to Capernaum, he doesn't tell us how he got there. Matthew tells us he came by boat. Mark just says when he'd come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. So again, an emphasis that this is where Jesus lived. This is where he had his home. Uh, often people forget that, that Jesus uh, on a day-to-day basis lived lived somewhere, lived in a house, had a roof over his head, and uh, would cook and eat and all of those normal things that human beings do. Now Mark also goes on to describe what happens in the uh, in the particular circumstances. In verses 3 and 4 of Mark, Mark says, and they came bringing to him a paralytic, a man who was paralyzed, carried by four men. The other accounts just said that men came carrying him. Mark gives us a little more uh, detail. says he was carried by four men and that they were unable to get him, get to him, that is to get to Jesus. They were unable to come through the house. And if you go to Capernaum, and some of you have been there. You remember looking at those uh, basalt houses that are there. They're built out of stone. They're very similar to what we would call shotgun houses. That is, they were long, narrow houses where one room was after another. It wasn't spread out like a ranch style or, or some of our houses are 
where you have all the rooms are, are sort of in a, in a circle or a square, theirs were all in a row. And so if Jesus was back inside the house, then the, all the rooms that you would have to go through to get to him were in the way, and they were all filled with people. And so there was no way to push their way through the crowd. They had to find another way to get to Jesus. So they went up on the roof, and Mark tells us they removed the roof above him. Now, this is uh, interesting, and it does fit uh, what we see about architecture in, um, in homes at that particular time. It's still observable in a number of sites where homes were preserved intact with, with uh, roofs on their uh, still existing over the walls at a couple of places in the Negev as well as in Petra and some areas up in uh, Syria, we have remains of houses where the roofs are still intact. Now, the way they constructed these wasn't with a thatched roof. If they had done it that way, then by uh, Mark seems to indicate they dug an opening, which would imply they dug through something. But the word that's translated dug is the word ex. Aruso, which indicates could indicate digging or removing or just breaking something up. And so if they had dug through a thatched roof, they would have destroyed the roof. Uh, this wasn't how they were constructed. Most of the homes had uh, arches that uh, covered, went from one wall to the other, and then tile was laid on top of those arches. So they would have gone up on the roof, and this is what uh, Luke, Luke seems to indicate in Luke 5.19. Just look at the second verse. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with, a, with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. So the picture is that they remove these tiles that creates a uh, large enough opening so that they could then lower his stretcher down into the room. You can just imagine what sort of a commotion that would have uh, created down below as all of a sudden some dust and other things start falling down from the roof above and people start looking up and moving back as soon as they see what's happening and making room as this stretcher is lowered in, in front of him. Now, Luke tells us that this crowd wasn't just made up of local people. It wasn't just made up of the local citizens of Capernaum or Galilee. And when he talks, when Matthew talks about the fact that there were scribes within, verse 3, we're told by Luke that it also included uh, teachers of the law and Pharisees. So there were a number of Jewish religious leaders that were present. Luke says one day he just describes the circumstance, doesn't get into the chronology of where he was coming from or anything like that. He just says one day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So there's a large group there that have come from all over Judea. They are representatives of the Jewish religious uh, leadership. And this is important to understand because uh, this fits the pattern of the way that uh, in Second Temple Judaism, the way in which the religious leaders looked at those who claimed to be 
the Messiah. They were there to investigate him. Luke makes this uh, very clear that there's a unique and distinct group there. Uh, lawyers, uh, that is, those who specialized in the interpretation of the law. Scribes were those who specialized in, in the copying of the law. And then the Pharisees who were teaching the law. Notice the Sadducees are, are not present. So they've come all from all over Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem in order to in, actually investigate Jesus. Word had gone out about Jesus healing the leper. That was the first miracle of healing that we studied back at the beginning of verse 8. And healing a leper was considered by the Pharisees to be one of the indisputable signs of the Messiah. It wasn't a healing that could be faked. It wasn't a healing that could be attributed to just some sort of psychological uh, trauma and the recovery from that. But it was something that was a, a an organic uh, disease or constitutional defect that had to be miraculously healed, and they viewed this as a unique and distinct sign of the Messiah. The other miracle that they believed was exclusive to the Messiah was the healing of someone who was blind, someone who was born blind. Jesus performed that miracle in John chapter 9, and we also have another example of it in Matthew uh, towards the end of uh, Matthew 9, where two blind men are healed uh, in Jericho. So the first miracle has taken place. Word has gone out to the Jewish leaders, and now they're coming to investigate. According to the law of the Sanhedrin, there were two stages of investigation for any messianic claim. The first stage was simply a stage of observation where a, an official delegation would be sent to anyone who made claims or seemed to be uh, making claims to be the Messiah, and they would come to observe. They would observe what he said, what he did, what he taught, what his disciples were saying, what his disciples were doing, and they uh, they didn't ask any questions. They didn't raise any objections. They were simply there to observe what was happening and to determine what was going on. After a period of observation, they would then go back to Jerusalem. They would meet and they would decide on whether or not this this claim had any significance or not. If it didn't have any significance, and they would just drop it and forget about it. But if they thought that there was might be something to this, then they would have to ramp things up to a second stage of in investigation, which they call the stage of interrogation. And in this stage, they would then go and begin to interrogate the individual who claimed to be the Messiah. They would uh, interrogate his disciples and those that were following in order to get further details. And so what we see here fits what we understand the Sanhedrin would have done. They are sending a group that have come from all the different regions within uh, within the land, from Galilee, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, and they were there simply to observe uh, this Jesus of Nazareth who was clearly making claims by his words and deeds that he was the Messiah. And so when Jesus looks at this particular crowd, he recognizes that who they are, and why they are there. This is why his response is different from other healings. In the other healings, people came to him to be healed, and he healed them. He did, did not make proclamations about forgiveness of sins. 
In this particular episode, as Matthew presents it, he he sees the paralyzed man on on his stretcher there in front of him, and instead of healing him, he says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. He specifically focuses on forgiveness of sins. Now, why in the world would Jesus do that? He is making a claim in front of those witnesses, those observers that have come from Jerusalem. He knows that the Pharisees, the scribes, and the lawyers are there, and he is making a specific statement to them on his claim to be a be the Messiah. He's not just randomly making a statement about forgiveness or about his ability to forgive, but he is making a point to his audience. And so he says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you. The word that he uses there for forgiveness is a word that should be familiar to us from the Greek. It's aphiemi. It's a word that is most often used to indicate forgiveness of sins. It has a range of meanings. It means to forgive something someone does, to permit someone to do something or to free them from something like a debt. So it has also the idea of canceling a debt. Uh, And those are the primary meanings I think we should associate with forgiveness. Something is canceled. It's used in passages to indicate the canceling of a debt, so it's a financial term. We'll come back to that in a minute, but that's an important thing to remember, that, that forgiveness is the canceling of a debt. What is the debt? The debt is the debt of sin. And so that debt of sin is canceled. We studied this a little bit back when we were going through the... Uh, Sermon on the Mount. If you recall, in the so-called Lord's Prayer, there is the statement that we pray to God requesting that he forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have, uh, carry our, who have debts against us. And the point of that, as I said, was that in rabbinic thought, sin was a debt against the character of God. We owed God something because we sinned. And so they they used these financial terms to express the ideas of what happens when somebody sins. When somebody sins, it's against God. There is a debt against God, and that debt must be paid. In forgiveness, therefore, God is forgiving that debt of sin or canceling that debt of sin. So these this financial idea is very much present in helping us understand uh, what takes place. And so Jesus makes his claim to forgive the sin of the paralyzed man, and this provokes an immediate hostile reaction from the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew describes it this way. He says, at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, now remember, according to the Sanhedrin law, they're not to object, they're not to raise questions, they're not to talk, they're just there to observe. And so they're just thinking within themselves. They're, this fits precisely the pattern we, we see from our study of the, of the customs of the day. They remain quiet, but as soon as this happens, they've interpreted it. See, this is what happens with, with people. We have what, what are described as presuppositions or assumptions, and often those, uh, those assumptions are extremely strong, and they put blinders upon our thinking so that rather than seeing things as they are, we see them as we want them to be. 
Those presuppositions get put a straitjacket on our thinking and destroy all objectivity. And uh, so what they are saying is that as soon as they witness this, their empiricism, they have an experience, but they wrongly interpret the experience. I point this out because a few weeks ago when I taught on the doctrine of healing, there's always people who say, well, such and such happened and God healed us. Well, how do you know? You don't have enough data to come to that conclusion. You know that a person was sick and they were healed, but you don't know anything about anything else that happened. You really can't see into the realm of divine activity. You can't see into the spiritual realm. You don't know what kind of psychological events may have contributed this. You don't have any idea how how the placebo effect may have uh, impacted a person's healing. None of these things are evident. You're just jumping to a conclusion based upon your presuppositions. Well, this is uh, something very similar. They just jump to a presupposition. It doesn't even occur to them that Jesus could be God because they've already discounted that presuppositionally. They've already rejected that. Uh, Mark describes it this way in in Mark 2, verses 6 and 7. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. They're having a little internal dialogue. Uh, they're talking to themselves, and they're saying, "This, what, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can receive? Who can forgive sins but God alone?" Now, see, they're right at their starting point. Their starting point is that only God can forgive sins. But their next point is uh, that they're saying, "Is this man? Uh, is, this is a man. He's not God." So their second uh, premise is a false premise. But it's that false premise that skews their ability to accurately and objectively interpret what has happened uh, around them. Something I want to point out here is that the reason that God is the only one that can forgive sins is because all sin is against God. Now, you and I may commit some sins that involve other people. For example, David committed the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. David then intensified that sin by uh, conspiring with his general Joab to have um, uh, Bathsheba's husband put in the forefront of the battle so that he would be killed. And he was just wrapped up in all this deception so that his sin impacted people around him. They impacted Bathsheba. They impacted the marriage. They impacted Uriah. Uh, Everybody around him is impacted by that particular sin. But in Psalm 51.4, which describes for us David's uh, confession to God, he says in verse 4, against you, God, against you only have I sinned. That's why God's the only one that can forgive sin, because it's his righteousness that is violated. It is his righteous code that is violated. It is not the righteous code of the human being that we have involved in our sin. Now, I'm not saying that that means they're irrelevant. I'm just saying that they haven't set the standard. It's it's like this. When somebody commits a crime, uh, a serious crime, that is a violation of federal statute, let's say you you commit a, a robbery, you get involved in a counterfeiting scheme or fraud, or you commit murder. 
when you are arrested, you are taken to court and tried. Now, your sin, if you committed murder or you committed robbery, involves other people. You committed some action against other people. But it's not up to them to press charges because the crime is against the, you violated the law of the land. And so the government takes you to trial and the government prosecutor brings the case against you, not the person you have offended. If that person that has been offended or is a victim of your crime wants retribution, they take you to civil court. But the issue in criminal penalization comes because you have violated the law of the land. So sin is a violation of, as it were, God's law in the broad sense, not the Mosaic law, but God's law, God's standards, God's absolutes in the broad broad sense. And so this is why uh, David says against you and you only have I sinned, and that's why God is the only one who can forgive sin. I can forgive people who uh, do something that hurts me or takes advantage of me or violates my person or my uh, possessions, but that has nothing to do with their spiritual life or their ultimate relationship uh, before God. And so we can only God can forgive sins. Another thing that I want to point out is that in rabbinical thought, this is that straitjacket of their presupposition, they believed that all disease, all physical illness, was a sign of divine displeasure. They're a lot like Job's three, three friends in the book of Job. They don't have a robust concept of the doctrine of sin and suffering. They have a diluted view, and they just want to, if you're sick, that's something you did. They have a very limited concept of, of suffering in this world. And so they believed that uh, if somebody was suffering from something, then it was a punishment from God for some specific sin. And so in their view, only God could, could therefore forgive sins. But as I pointed out, this is a biblical concept going back to, uh, going back to Psalm 51. Now another point, just in terms of background, is that in the Mosaic Law, there's uh, no such thing as official forgiveness of sins or absolution involving the priesthood. A leper could, according to the law, could be pronounced clean by the priest. A transgressor might bring sin offerings, transfer his guilt to it, but you, and on the day of atonement, sins might be uh, cleansed ritually, but forgiveness is not a concept in the Old Testament that we see uh, because the cross hasn't occurred yet. In a sense, it is, it's real, but it's not based on, some, on the, the actual payment has not taken place yet. And so they clear, clearly understood only God could forgive it, but at no point in the, in the uh, temple or tabernacle ritual did the priest ever say, your sins are forgiven. You were cleansed, but he never says your sins are forgiven. So this is a unique and distinct uh, concept, and Jesus knows what they're thinking. Now, Mark tells us he does this by the Spirit. And if you look at your English Bible in Mark, it has a lowercase s. But I believe that that should be translated with an uppercase s because Jesus is walking by the Spirit, uh, and so the Spirit is communicating with him. Uh, and so he understands what is going on in their thinking. And so he says, why do you think evil in your hearts? 
they are accusing him of blasphemy, which means that they are, he is violating God's standard and showing disrespect for God. But in fact, they are thinking evil in their hearts. So this is a divine viewpoint on rejection of Jesus as Messiah as evil. We often think that evil are just those horrible things that somebody does, like uh, ISIS beheading those who are not uh, devout Muslims in their opinion, or we think of evil as someone who is committing a genocide or mass murder, something of that nature. We think of evil only in terms of horrendous acts that are are quite uh, enormous in their consequences. But the Bible shows that evil not only involves religion and the so-called good things, but it also involves those horrible things. So evil is anything that is a sin, anything that it's a violation of the character of God, and thinking that you can somehow gain approval from God through your good deeds is really a form of evil. And so you have different kinds of evil in human experience. You have evil that goes in the guise of good, and you have evil that goes in the guise of overt sins. And often what we see, just as a side point, often what we see when we live in the devil's world, especially with the government, is we see two policies vying against each other, and they're really one form of evil vying against another form of evil. So always keep that in mind as you reflect upon uh, different things that are happening in the world around us. Now, the evil that they're thinking in their heart goes back to something that happened earlier in their lives, and that is as they reached God consciousness, they rejected God. This is the structure of the teaching in Romans chapter 1, and I've just pulled out this one verse that the wrath of God, that is divine discipline and judgment of God in time, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, those who are the receptors of God's judgment in this case are those who have rejected him. Romans 1, uh, 19 and 20 make it clear that God's existence is evident through his, cre- through his uh, creation that his invisible attributes are manifest through the visible material universe that he has created. And so an individual can look at creation and say, I know there's something greater than us. This couldn't just happen by chance. I want to know who that is. Now, that may all get covered up in the years to come, like with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was essentially positive toward God. But he went the wrong way, and it all got covered up with all the religiosity of the Pharisees until Jesus had to dramatically break through that on Paul's uh, trip to Damascus when the Lord appeared to him. And it was at that time that that Paul was able to break through the blindness uh, of his own uh, of his own sin and suppression of truth because Jesus illuminated him in that unique way in that situation. And so, but there are other, many others who when they come to God consciousness, they say, no, I, I, I'm not, I, I really don't care or I think that I can figure this out all on my own, but they, they go negative at God consciousness and they just get mired deeper and deeper into their own truth suppression mechanisms, and there's no recovery. And that's what we see with, the, with most of the Pharisees and scribes and those who are here, is that they just have immediately interpreted the empirical data 
of Jesus healing the, uh, the paralyzed man and saying, no, this is not what it claims to be. This man's just blaspheming God, and so they reject that. In verse 5, Jesus brings out this point. He says, your, your sins are forgiven. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say, arise and walk. If you tell someone your sins are forgiven, there's no empirical data that they are forgiven. Anybody can say that. Anybody can just form those words and articulating that. But uh, that doesn't mean that their sins are actually forgiven. So Jesus is going to give an object lesson here to prove that what he said is actually actually the case and actually true. He's pointing out this distinction between uh, just saying something and doing something. What is evident here in the background is that the opposition to Jesus is beginning to increase. This is going to build for us in, in Matthew's narrative until we see it, uh, the, the, the crescendo in chapter 12 and the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees reject Jesus and say that he's doing all of these miracles in the power of Satan. So here Jesus brings out the point in verse 5, and then in verse 6 he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man, here he brings in this really subtle point. He's claiming a divine prerogative. He's going to do something only God can do, which gives evidence of his deity, but then he calls himself the Son of Man. Now this phrase, Son of Man, comes out of one of Daniel's uh, visions where God revealed the future to him in Daniel chapter 7. And as it depicts the end of the tribulation period, just before the, the Messiah comes to the earth and establishes his kingdom, you have this scene presented in Daniel chapter 7 where the Son of Man comes before the Ancient of Days. The Ancient of Days is God the Father. The Son of Man is the Messiah. And the term Son of Man indicates he's human. He's as well as divine. In Hebrew, the idiom is that if, that if you're describing the character of something, then you would say that it's the son of that attribute. Uh, that doesn't mean physical generation. It just means that if you're honest, you would be called the son of honesty. If you're a thief, you'd be called the son of a thief. If you are a murderer, you're called the son of a murderer. If you're a destructive, uh, diabolical person, you're called an, an SOB, a son of Belial. And so this, this gives us a picture of what this idiom means. If, if you are claiming to be God, you would be called the son of God. That's a claim to deity. If you're claiming humanity, Jesus is called the son of man, which emphasizes his humanity. So these terms are important because they reflect back on the, the, the who Jesus is in terms of his deity and his humanity in the hypostatic union. So he says that you may know that the Son of Man, he's clearly referring to himself as Messiah, using a messianic title. He knows exactly what he's doing in front of these observers. So that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And immediately the man arose and departed the house. He's obedient. He said, Okay, I'm out of here. Picked up his, his uh, pallet, walked out. And when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. 
And so what they are reflecting there is they're still looking at Jesus as a man that somehow God has given him this power to heal. They don't quite have the picture down. Now, I want to close with a couple of points and a reminder on the basic doctrine that we see here, which is forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of those concepts that a lot of people aren't real clear on. I think that's because it's really hard for us to forgive people. But forgiveness is vital to the Christian life. We are to forgive one another. But forgiving one another uh, is, must be based upon really, truly understanding the forgiveness that we have from God. Forgiveness from God cancels or obliterates sin, but it doesn't necessarily cancel or obliterate consequences. Last night I was uh, with some Jewish friends and was learning about a sermon that was preached yesterday. Yesterday was Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a day of atonement, which is a great illustration from the Old Testament on forgiveness because on the day of atonement the high priest would take two, two goats and he places his hand on, on the goats and confesses the sins of the people. One goat is then taken to be sacrificed, indicating the penalty for sin, and the other goat is taken off far, far away out into the wilderness where it is released, indicating that once forgiveness has taken place, God removes it completely. It disappears. It's no longer a factor. Scripture says God removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. It's a complete and total cleansing, but it's based upon a death, a penalty that is paid. So yesterday's message, as it usually is in the synagogue on uh, Yom Kippur, related to forgiveness and specifically related to uh, not holding a grudge, not bearing a grudge, seeking revenge, things, uh, things of that nature. And so I asked the question, well, did he bring out the, the issue of consequences? That sometimes we can forgive a person, but that doesn't mean that, that they're absolved of consequences. When David committed the sin with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, when, when that was over with God, God removed the death penalty, which was part of the Mosaic law. If, if, the death, if, if David had gotten what he deserved because of the law, he would have been executed for adultery. God ameliorated that from the penalty, but God didn't remove all the consequences. In fact, there were four distinct consequences that occurred to David as a result of that sin. The, the child that was born as a result of that adulterous union died. Uh, David, and all of these had something to do with, with sexual sin that, that David had committed. He has a, a, a daughter and a son who are half-siblings, and the one the one son ki- uh, raped the daughter, and then the other son Absalom killed the son who raped the daughter, and then there was the uh, uh, so that involves two separate sins: the the rape and then the killing of the one who committed the rape, and then the final uh, final discipline was the rebellion of Absalom and Absalom's death. So there there you see that that God ameliorated the most extreme form of, judge, or of discipline, but there were still consequences to David's sin. Sometimes God completely and totally removes all the consequences for our sins, and many, many times he does that in grace. Other times God says, I'm going to reduce the consequences. It's not going to be as bad as it ought to be, but you need to learn a lesson. And at other times, 
Uh, because we have been so rebellious, God just lets us feel the full force of the consequences of our bad decisions. So consequences and the experience of consequences has little to do with forgiveness. You can forgive someone. If you've been the victim of abuse as a child, as an adult, as a spouse, you can forgive and you must forgive the person who abused you, but that doesn't mean that you go right back into the relationship. That doesn't mean that you necessarily absolve them of all consequences. That doesn't mean that you do something foolish. So we have to use wisdom as to how we act in regard to a person who has injured us we need to forgive them because if we bear a grudge, if we bear mental attitude sins against them, then the only person that hurts is us. It keeps us out of fellowship. It prevents us from growing spiritually. It creates a, a, a burden in our soul that just increases its weight down through time. We have to understand the dynamics of forgiveness. Now, in the New Testament, we have three verses I want to point out where this word for forgiveness is emphasized. In Ephesians 1.7, as well as in Colossians 1.14, we have the statement, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin. So it relates forgiveness to redemption. Now, the word redemption means to pay a price. And I didn't understand this for many years until I started digging down into the meaning of afiemi, the word for forgiveness, that forgiveness refers also as a financial term to canceling a debt. So there is a parallel and a synonymous relationship between redemption paying the price and forgiveness, which is canceling a debt. This is what happened, though, at the cross in terms of the canceling of the debt of sin against mankind. Forgiveness is emphasized in Acts 13.38. Uh, Paul says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, that is, Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness. Excuse me, this is Peter speaking. Through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. That is a summary of the gospel. John would summarize it as the offer of eternal life, but Peter summarizes it as the forgiveness of sins. And in Acts 26.18, it's expressed in terms of receiving the forgiveness of sins. So we see two different aspects here. There is one aspect of forgiveness of sin that occurs objectively at the cross, and another aspect of forgiveness of sins is when it is individually applied to each person when they believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. These are the two words that are used in Scripture that are often translated forgiveness. Afiemi, which is the more precise word, which means to forgive, to cancel, to abandon, to cancel a debt, that idea, we've already looked at that. Charizomai is a word which, from the, from the uh, noun charis, which means grace, it means to act graciously. And in co certain contexts, it means to forgive. And that shows us the emphasis of forgiveness is to act graciously. They don't deserve it. Grace means giving someone undeserved favor. Un unmerited kindness. They don't deserve it. They have committed some infraction against us, but we need to forgive them. We have committed sin against God. We don't deserve anything, but God graciously provides us with a solution. He sent his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. This is what happened objectively. I want to briefly go back and review something we learned as we went through Colossians. Paul summarizes 
what happened at the cross this way. Remember, there's two kinds of forgiveness. An objective forgiveness, which is what happened at the cross. It's true for every single human being. And then there's a subjective forgiveness, which happens only when we trust in Christ. There's also a subjective forgiveness that occurs after salvation, whenever we confess our sins. And then there's a personal forgiveness that takes place when we forgive one another. Those are the four kinds of forgiveness that we see in the Scripture. The the legal or forensic forgiveness that occurred at the cross, the individual forgiveness, positional forgiveness that occurs at the moment we trust in Christ, uh, the experiential forgiveness that occurs in first, when we use 1 John 1, 9, and then forgiving one another, those four. So Paul says in Colossians 2.13, and the grammar here is really important, but I'm, I'm just trying to summarize it. It's loaded with participles, and the key is understanding in the Greek grammar the relation of the participles to the main verb. He says in the text it reads, being dead, it's re- it should be temporal, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's when you were an unbeliever. At the moment you trusted in Christ, half a second before that, you were spiritually dead. So he says, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. That should be a causal concept. Uh, or, or, excuse me. He has made alive together with him is the main verb. That's, that's regeneration. He has made us alive together with him. And then you have another participle that should be understood to be causal because... Because he has forgiven you of all trespasses. So the chronology here is is you're regenerated, you're born again because he's already forgiven you of your sins. That happened sometime before. Now the question is, when did he forgive you? Is this just a logical thing that he forgave you uh, before he regenerated you because you believed in Christ? Or is it much earlier? And that's explained in verse 14. Because he he forgave you of all trespasses. Well, how did he forgive us of all trespasses? How could he cancel that debt? The beginning of verse 14, by wiping out the handwriting of requirements or the debt against us. When did he cancel the debt against us? It goes on to say he did this, look at the last phrase, when he nailed it to the cross. That happened in A.D. 33. So that means that that forgiveness of all trespasses was accomplished by wiping out or canceling the debt against us. That occurred historically at the cross. So this is talking about positional or legal forgiveness. That's that's the key to unlimited atonement. Christ paid the penalty for all sin at the cross. We talked about this on Thursday night. Now, here's my paraphrase of this. And you, though you were dead in your trespasses... And this uncircumcision of your flesh, he has already, when we believed, made us alive together with him because he had previously graciously forgiven you, because the word there is charizomai, not afiemi. He had previously graciously forgiven you of all trespasses by canceling the debt, uh, that is that handwriting of requirements, canceling the debt that was against us. That occurred at the cross. So remember from Thursday night, we've got three problems. This is a synthesis of what's on the barrier. The barrier lists a lot of problems and different dimensions to salvation. I'm boiling it down to these three to catch the significance of unlimited atonement. We're born spiritually dead. We're born lacking perfect righteousness. And we're born under the condemnation of Adam's original sin. We're born under a death penalty. 
What happens at the cross is Christ pays the death penalty. It cancels the debt against everyone. They're still born spiritually dead. They're still born unrighteous. But the debt is paid. That secures forensic or legal forgiveness for everyone. But it doesn't make them saved. They have to trust in Jesus. When you trust in Christ, then you're regenerate. We receive a new human spirit. When we trust in Christ, we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And when we trust in Christ, we're declared righteous, justification. That's based on the fact that redemption occurred historically, objectively at the cross, which forgave us positional, which forgave us legally all mankind of sin. But it's only applied when people individually trust in Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, thank you for this opportunity to reflect upon the tremendous gift that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the Son of Man, who came into human history to go to the cross to pay the penalty for sin that we might have eternal life. Father, our prayer is that if there's anyone here who is uncertain of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they may take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus died on the cross for you. When he hung on that cross during those three hours when God covered Golgotha with darkness, God imputed to him all of your sins, all of my sins, all of the sins of the world without exception. Jesus paid that penalty so that the issue now is not your sin. The issue is trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And that's the issue. The only way that that forgiveness, that legal forensic forgiveness is applied is by trusting in him. And at that instant, we are positionally, totally, uh, experientially forgiven of sin, and we enter into new life. We're given a new spirit. We're regenerate. We're justified. You need to understand this. This is your opportunity, if you've never trusted in Christ, to do so. Now, Father, we pray for the rest of us that we might come to understand forgiveness a little better, that as we understand your forgiveness of our sin, we may in turn learn to exercise that same forgiveness towards those around us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.